Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Farah Dahabi is a clinical social worker and the mental health first aid director at Lighthouse Arabia. She specializes in grief, trauma, and health psychology. She was trained in the U.S. as a clinical social worker with extensive experience working with individuals suffering from grief, loss, trauma, illness adjustment, disability, caregiver burnout, and major depression. She was driven to become a clinical social counselor by an early fascination with human experiences of thought and emotion. During her studies, she worked with troubled girls, providing individual and group treatment for self-esteem and self-harming issues. She also spent time researching the effects of social exclusion and depression amongst Muslim adults. She has worked in collaboration with national healthcare quality improvement organizations in the U.S. toward implementing programs that better meet the needs of individuals with psychiatric problems. This included educating other healthcare professionals on best practices surrounding clinical services. We are so blessed to have her here working at Lighthouse Arabia in Dubai, and I'm extremely excited and blessed to have her on the show today. Please welcome Farah. Thank you, Farah, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here as we were just talking um, before we started recording. We've been discussing doing this for a while, and I'm, I'm so happy that that you're here. And um, I'm very, look, very much looking forward to the discussion that we're going to have today. I'm so passionate about what we're speaking about, Pam. And and I know as we were getting started, you were saying it's so good to have an, an an expert on board when we think of health psychology, specifically living with a chronic condition like diabetes. And while there's going to be pieces of advice or insight that are raised today, I know that you as a mother of a child with diabetes are an expert. And for for those who are listening and supporting a child or a loved one who has diabetes, yes, I'm in I have some expert knowledge, but ultimately you are also the expert on what's happening with you and your child. So I'm excited to come together and see what what will form from us sharing knowledge and expertise together. Uh, thank you so much for for saying that. And I think, yeah, all of us managing or some kind of chronic condition in a child, it's we become experts in something that we never really thought we would have to or want to or need to become experts in. But yes, over time to raise a healthy child, keep them alive, um, keep them happy and healthy, we we do become experts in in our our own way and through our experience so so thank you for that so i'll start back from the beginning and how we met i think that's a good starting point um i think for those of you that, that follow me on social media or follow my blog post you'll know a few months back my son if if you're listening for the first time my son has been living with type 1 diabetes since he's 20 months he was 20 months old he's now a teenager so we're approaching his 14th year um diversary um since he was diagnosed and and that was really hard when he was 20 months old my first child my only child and i was you know a new newish still a new mom working trying to get everything together 
And, you know, we found our way and I started Diapoint and, and doing all of these different things. But the the way that I came in contact with Farah was a few months ago, one night he had a severe low blood sugar while he was sleeping mm-hmm. and it wasn't coming back up with, we usually treat um, nighttime lows with a juice box because it's fast, it's easy. He can drink it and just kind of half awake and go back to sleep. And it wasn't coming up. And I had not experienced a severe low blood sugar in my child like that since he was very small. I mean, maybe, I don't know, three or four years old or something like that. And I I went through the motions. We did everything right. I didn't sleep, of course, and just waited and watched over him. And after then, finally, when it seemed stable, slept a couple hours, got up and then just went on about my day, like no big deal where actually was it no big deal or was it a big deal? Because it's kind of a big deal when your child is riding at a a very severe low blood sugar and it's not coming back up. And we had to, I had to administer glucagon and it was the first time we were using the inhalable one. It's much easier than the injectable glucagon, which a lot of people still use. And I've had to use that one before. And man, that is like the biggest needle ever like nothing like injecting insulin. It's super scary. And, and the, the first doctor that I was blessed to meet that really understood type one diabetes was in the U S he's retired now. Dr. Maury Heyman was amazing. And he was very, while very academic, he was very upfront and very honest with me. And he said, this is, you know, gluke again, it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when you are going to have to use this. So you need to know how to use it. So, you know, I survived it did it, but it was scary. It was traumatizing. Inhalable glucagon is much easier, but it did, when we finally did use it, it did make this kind of like recoil reaction because it's under a lot of pressure. Not, I don't think as much pressure as say, like when asthmatics have to use an inhaler, it seemed from what I've observed, it seems to go in a little less severe, but my son didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. The next day he felt off which I think could be, you know, slightly normal. His doctor said he could be getting a virus or something. And maybe that's why he didn't feel well after, but lived through that. And then I wrote about it because writing is quite therapeutic for me. And I share my personal experience, not my child's experience, although he was involved in that experience. And then after I wrote it, I thought, I'm just going on about my day. Like it's normal. Is that really normal? And this is a subject that I think we need to talk about because a lot of parents, especially if your child's newly diagnosed, I always say the learning curve is a straight vertical line. There's no time to really find your grounding or catch your breath. Even you're, you're just usually a diagnosis happens. You go to the hospital, your child's in DKA because you didn't realize they had high blood sugar. You didn't realize this was happening. Nobody, nobody could tell you or warn you, or you couldn't know. And then you have to learn all of this medical stuff. And if you're not medical, it's a lot to take on. So I reached out to Lighthouse Arabia, um, to Saliha, and I said, you know, hey, I would like to speak to you or someone that can really help us better understand this, understand these emotions, understand how to manage it, define what it is, what we're what we're all going through. And she said, I have the perfect person for you. And, and then that's when she, she introduced me to you. So, 
So there was a little bit of a long introduction and why, but I wanted to really tell that story so that everyone has a good understanding of, you know, just because this happened and my son was diagnosed over a decade ago, Mm -hmm. I'm still sometimes going back to this very traumatic place, which I don't think is so unusual, but I just wonder if you could shed some light on the whole process. I know there's a lot of points that I've I've highlighted um, there. So I'll turn it over to you from, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think maybe starting at the beginning of a, a diagnosis when you're having to deal with all of this. Yeah. What do you do? Where do you put it all? I'm so glad that we've we've met and we've connected. And I'm so passionate about if we call it the field of health psycho- psychology and the unique trauma, emotional toll and experiences and stress of what it means to live with a a receiving a diagnosis and what it means to be living with a chronic illness as well. And, And really thinking of the family and the community system and the schools and how they respond. And I think something so important is kind of fleshing out and naming is that when a diagnosis is first received, and I and I love this word you used. I've never heard it before, actually, Pam, which is diversary. And I'll tell you why it's so important too, because when you receive a diagnosis of diabetes or really any health condition, that is a time of acute And when I say acute, that means raw trauma. So think of that time emotionally, psychologically as a big open wound. But oftentimes what happens, especially with mothers often often being the primary caregiver, not always, parents will um, be acting from a place of what we call hypervigilance, meaning the nervous system is saying, I'm going into fight mode and I don't even have time to feel we need to figure out doctors and medicine and our home and and watching the the blood sugar levels and how do we mobilize our doctors our home our schools and that state of adrenaline that parents are responding from it's it's almost completely missed where someone is saying you're experiencing acute trauma right now and what do we need to do to take care of you during this time. And the child or the teen is also experiencing that, but is in that state of, I need to figure out what I'm doing and what's happening. So I want to name that when you first receive a diagnosis, that is a time, a traumatic time. And why do I like this word diversary? I guess bittersweet when I say like, is that when we think of trauma, meaning diagnoses, but also each time you may experience a traumatic incident like you just described, Pam, that moment where you had to use a different type of medication and an emotionally charged, terrifying situation, that trauma will, that diversity will have trauma anniversaries that trigger symptoms. What that means is every time you approach an anniversary of a trauma when something big happened, something unexpected happened, the beginning or something along the journey, that even if you're not consciously thinking about it, that your body and the cells in your body remember, which is where I can see parents and even individuals living with a chronic illness like diabetes say, and you may see this in your children, I just feel kind of sad, or I feel, I just don't really feel like myself lately. 
or I feel a little bit extra worried or detached. And so we really want to highlight in your journey of caring for you is to maybe even mark on some of those calendars, what were some difficult times? And to proactively name in yourself to say, okay, here comes this anniversary. How are we doing? How am I feeling in my body? You know, so I'm going to just- amazing. Yeah, Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. I want to add, so diversity, I am not responsible for that term. It's a very commonly used term in the type one world. And a lot of parents use that day to celebrate and celebrate their child and everything that they've had to overcome, which is amazing. I personally didn't know how I felt about it for years, and I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I didn't want to celebrate it. My son was too young to remember that day. Like diabetes for us just is like every day is a challenge. And, you know, I thought, okay, kind of maybe celebrating other milestones when they happen or whatever, but I never made such a a big deal of it for us personally, but some people, some people do. And I acknowledge that always, Mm -hmm. because I think it is an amazing thing. And if you can, you know, turn that into something beautiful, but at the same time, for me, I was like, that's just kind of a coping mechanism. And then how is my son going to feel about it? Does he because he doesn't remember that day. Does he have strong feelings about celebrating it in that way or not? I I was never really sure. I don't think, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer here, but, but I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. I'm not responsible for, for that term. It's been around much longer than my son's been diagnosed. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And um, you're absolutely right. There's no right or wrong way to respond to trauma. So while even as you approach trauma anniversaries, and that's so important for everyone who's listening is, if you feel like celebrating resonates with you and is meaningful, then absolutely trust you are an expert on you. And and we're also saying that the trauma and the grief, and we'll talk more about grief, the loss of the dream of your child or you not having diabetes is entangled during that time of trauma. And what's important for me as a as kind of grief and trauma specialist is that one year or one season of your life celebrating may resonate. And there may be another day or season of your life where you're saying, today, I'm not celebrating. And today, I feel rage, or I feel immobilized, or empty or numb. And I need you to know that when those emotions arise, it doesn't mean you're crazy or you're failing or you're doing something wrong, but that is the nature of what it means to live with the chronic illness. And and I want to go a little bit deeper in what happens during times of, of, of trauma, Pam. And this means the beginning of the journey or anywhere along the journey when it's a um, and you know, when we think of trauma, the most baseline definition is going to be an emotionally overwhelming experience. That is, it dysregulates our nervous system. So what's traumatic for one child or one parent may not be traumatic for someone else. Right? It, it, it varies. There's no one fixed, like that was traumatic. Right? And we're saying that what can happen during those times is some people, so you're thrown out of it. Think of like, we almost have this baseline. We call it a window of regulation. It's where like, I feel like myself, I feel safe, I feel okay. And during times of trauma, there can be hyperactivation, which would be when, um, and this can be in your children, your teen, yourself, where there can be intense anxiety. So some people during that time may feel 
very, very afraid, worried, panicked, heart is racing. It's like go mode, running on adrenaline, right? My mind is not switching off. And I and we hear this a lot where parents are monitoring. I can't switch off, I'm just watching, right? And we're saying, on one hand, that hypervigilance and that monitoring is helping you keep your, your child and your loved one safe. And also your nervous system or that home alarm system is saying, Anything horrible can happen at any minute. I'm terrified. Stay awake. Don't sleep. Right? And so the nervous system is bracing itself, which is also a trauma response. And some people can have a bit of a different response, which is, I feel frozen. I feel empty. I feel paralyzed. I don't know what to do. I feel dead inside. And and when you're experiencing trauma, one season of your life, it may be panic. And there may maybe another moment where you're like, I, I froze. I didn't feel anything. I didn't know what to do. I didn't do the right things. And I need you to know that, that there's, we're not saying one response is right or wrong, but we want to shed light on saying this is a trauma response that also needs tending to kind of cleaning, disinfecting, monitoring, support, nourishing, the same way you would tend to blood sugar levels and a wound that your child may have. I love the word hypervigilant because I'm pretty sure that I am in that mode almost all the time. I mean, now I'm a little more comfortable with the diagnosis. It's been, you know, 13, 14 years, but man, I was ultra hypervigilant for, I think the first three years I didn't sleep really to the point that I would get, I I got physically sick. I would get pneumonia every three years. I mean, it was very obvious and cyclical and hypervigilant is exactly the mode. I think a lot of moms go in. There's kind of a meme that goes around that it's so true though, that, you know, Oh, welcome to type one. Like you will never sleep again because even with all of these continuous glucose monitors and the technology and things we have now, And my son has an insulin pump that will suspend before he goes to dangerously low. And, and it, and his pump did suspend in that example I shared earlier, but it just didn't come back up for a few, you know, other biological reasons, but the, even now with that pump, yes, I can sleep a little better, but I still wake up like at 2am, I jump out of bed and think, oh my gosh, what is this blood sugar? Like I overslept and I missed that opportunity to sleep. I don't think I've ever slept all through the night since then it's like ingrained deep the the no sleep thing because the the constant worry that they're going to go too low at night and you're going to miss it and then they could possibly die is is the end result of a extreme low low blood sugar now statistically you know from a physician's perspective the possibility of that happen might be very small but you know, we do see cases from time to time in social media and support groups where it has happened. So, you know, even if there's like a 0.0001% possibility of it happening, you you don't want it to happen, of course. So hyper, hyper vigilant is such a, a loaded word. And that's only one example of where we're hyper vigilant, I think. And, and, you know, hearing you say there's such a resonance that you know, amongst mothers saying, well, you're never going to sleep the same again. And and I hear that as the baseline of stress and anxiety that caregivers are holding when you have a chronically sick child is absolutely elevated, right? Like your baseline is elevated. And when we say 
times of trauma, we're saying it is it is next level, right? But we're saying that you are living with an elevated chronic a chronic level of stress that's there where you're monitoring, watching. And when you say in your con in your conscious mind, there's always a fear somewhere around, what if my child dies? And how traumatic that is. And there may be some weeks where you say my my baseline stress is steady. And I say steady relative compared to what it means to have a sick child, right? We cannot even compare your baseline to someone who does not have a sick child. And we're saying when you may be struggling to sleep, or maybe there are other stressors, maybe your health is compromised, or there's a struggle with in-laws or something, and you're carrying already this baseline stress, there's more of a risk factor that we can see things like depression, anxiety disorder, addiction, or even chronic physical health issues for caregivers because your baseline is already so high. And we can see there may be a situation that throws you into hypervigilance, into that fight mode or that freeze mode during unassuming, unexpected times, even. Yeah, that's the thing after it's that then these things happen and you don't expect that you're going to be triggered by them and it's going to take you back there. And then, yeah, it, you, it's, it's almost like having to, I would say I'm going to start from the, the beginning again, but when you didn't really know how to handle it before or what to do, you have to kind of, you know, muddle through it. And I think a lot of people are doing that because they're so worried about their child's physical and mental health. And then the caretakers are often overlooking themselves. So you mentioned grief. And usually when people, you know, think of grief, they think of usually more honestly death or or something else or the loss of a relationship or something like this. But can you tell us more about what that means in this context? Yeah. So grief would be, it, it can be in the context of death, but it's in the context of the loss of something, the loss of a dream, the loss of the dream of what it means to have a healthy child, a healthy family, to have that carefree life and existence, to sleep through the night. And so grief is not a mental illness. And it's so important to know that with di- living with diabetes or any chronic condition, the grieving process has very defining traits, right? So it can living with grief is like having your back to the ocean and never knowing when those waves may arrive or what size those waves may be, right? And so it's very common for people who are grieving to feel like I'm losing control. Where one minute I feel totally okay. I've accepted this. I'm adjusted. We're in our rhythm. My child is safe. And then you're sitting with someone and they're like, you know, savor every moment. And, you know, we just went on a holiday and our biggest worry was like some random trivial stuff. And you're thinking anger, injustice, unfairness, loneliness, right? And I want you to know in those moments, it doesn't mean you're crazy, that that is a grief trigger, right? You could be, you know, at the airport traveling with that bag of medicine and thinking, I wish I didn't have to do this. I wish my child didn't have to be poked with this giant needle and up comes sadness or anxiety. And that is grief, right? So grief is not just sadness. It's every emotion you can possibly think of. 
fear, loneliness, numbness, exhaustion, struggling to focus, feeling lonely. And I need you to know that that is very expected. We don't solve that grief, right? But we have to learn how to move with it. So when you think of grief, I want you to visualize like an like an um, like an airport. We cannot control the emotions that are arriving, and this is true for your children too. You cannot control that today I feel low or today I feel angry. But the work is in how do I respond to that emotion by giving it empathy, space, even if that's three minutes of what is that like for you, and responding with compassion the way you would someone you love. And this is the work of of grief. Hmm. I like that. Airports are a big trigger for me. (laughs) Like, because ever since, so we've been traveling, you know, since my son was diagnosed at 20 months old. And when he was very small, the juice box was the go-to to treat a low blood sugar. And I would always carry them on a carry on and we would get pulled over every time and our luggage would get searched. They would sometimes even open the juice box to make sure like it wasn't flammable liquid. I just found it and still find it absurd and so annoying that, you know, children with chronic conditions have to deal with that. And then also, I mean, if I'm really honest here, most of the time it was in my home country, the United States, where you weren't treated professionally even. It was as if guilty before innocent Mm. and and it's not that you want special treatment or anything like that you just want to be treated humanely when we Mm. travel to other countries and they want to search usually with the exception of a couple times they're professional if they need to search our luggage then fine Mm. and then that also triggers me when they're professional and I say thank you for being professional I I find myself getting a little teary because I'm grateful that I wasn't treated badly or my son wasn't. And I could even feel as my son got older, he would look to me to see what my reaction was. And I could feel that. And like, I need to stay calm and not lose it so that he knows how to handle this later in life when he's traveling alone. And, you know, he forgot maybe he's got a juice box or last time we went through airport security, we have, you know, it's a box full of test strips and needles and all kinds of stuff. And fair enough, it's just a hot mess. So they want to go through everything and make sure, you know, you're not smuggling anything, I guess, or whatever. Fair enough. I don't mind. But it just really, yeah, when you're talking about like an airport and things going in and out, I got a lot of things going in and out of my airport, but because it's based on the like real life experience and for other people, it may not be airports. It may be other places that, you know, schools, it might be something else. What a powerful metaphor or how symbolic can airport be of the journey of what it means to, to live with caring for that, for your child, right? Where it's like, it's a moment of, you don't even know what I had to do to orchestrate getting here to make sure everything's safe. And this is exposing. Now you're judging and and watching and, and it can even feel humiliating in that moment. Like what's this? And the face is what it is. Humiliating, humiliating my kid because he has a chronic condition. He never asked for. And the, the, um, it, and I wonder if it can feel like, don't you dare make things worse for me. Mm. How dare you make things worse for me? 
Yeah. Not me, but the, the protect, I guess the protect, I want to protect my child from being humiliated, being wrongfully accused of something. I'm like, take me. I don't, I, no issues. We can talk. But when it comes to my child, like, do not mess with him. He's already got enough stuff to deal with, I think is kind of where, where that comes from. But yeah, the, the airport, you go through a lot to get to the airport, pack the things, then people are questioning what you have and all of that. And even then you get on the plane and sometimes they're like, oh, you can put your carry on up here. And I'm like, no, really, I can't because it's full of medic medicine or, or sometimes some airports they'll, when you get to the gate, and this is very common in the U.S., they'll ask you if you, you almost insist you check your carry on luggage into the bottom of the plane. I'm like, nope, not doing that. All the life-saving things are here. Can't do it. And then they look at you like, well, what's wrong with you? Yeah, so it's 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 a very loaded, like you said, metaphor, because I think a lot of the feelings that we feel day to day or week to week in managing diabetes, you can feel them all in an airport or a lot, a lot of them, most of them. So hard. It's triggering. It's so hard. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, we get used to it, but you just do it because you have to do it and you want, you want to normalize it for your child. I never want him to not have great experiences. And like the last trip where they searched everything, we were coming back from, from a wedding. And then kind of the running joke is also, we had an automotive part (laughs) because we couldn't find the piece for my car here. And we brought it, you know, from another country. And that actually in some places got more attention than the diabetes stuff. So it was kind of funny. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's always an experience and it, that anxiety is same thing as sending your child to school for a lot of parents, again, trying to protect your child and you're afraid to send them to school. You're afraid to send them on the school trip. You're afraid to send them out to play sports because all of those things can happen. Plus the risk factor, if you're not there to be the person to stand up to the security or whoever and protect them, it's, it's really hard. Yeah. So yeah, I never thought of it in that context. It's a it's a lot to carry. So then that leads me to my next question: What can we do as caretakers? And maybe it's different for people that are just getting this diagnosis, or they're just one year in versus five, ten years in. What can caretakers, parents, moms? sometimes it's even grandparents that are caretaking or whoever it is. What, what can we do to, I don't want to say manage it because we need to feel it and experience, but what can we do to make it a little bit easier or what can help us in in those situations? Yeah. So when we think of first getting a diagnosis, uh, I'll mention some things there, but really anytime you're in a period of acute trauma, something has shifted or there's something raising that, like I'm really worried about this coming up or something's been off lately. Anytime you're navigating a first diagnosis or periods of of trauma, it will be absolutely essential. We can name that. We call it name it to tame it, right? So when you say, even if you can just say, we are going through a traumatic time right now, or this is an acutely painful time, 
this is important because what you're doing is you're validating to yourself, this is different. And you may even be mobilizing your support system, emotionally, friends, family, professionals to say, we're going through a traumatic time. So we want to name it and also accurately scale what you're going through. Sometimes we can miss scale the gravity of the stress, anxiety, or pain. And it's saying, you know, it's like when when you tell me what you went through when we first started talking, Pam, it's saying, Pam, you're, you you recently experienced trauma, and that's what's here for you right now. We're just naming it first, right? So that's one tool I would say, um, naming it and scaling it. You may even say, like, if this was a one to ten, meaning ten being the worst panic I've ever felt. And one being, I feel totally good, neutral, relaxed. Where where am I on this scale? And you can actually use that with your children, like an emotional barometer almost. And I know you guys are experts at kind of scaling and numbers. So this may be a bit of a different frame. You can even do this with your partners or other siblings. Like, where are you at in terms of your stress or overwhelm right now? Let's scale it. And I would say during times of trauma, what is non-negotiable will be things like water. So 12 to 14 cups, because if you are dehydrated, we can see depressive-like symptoms with mood, right? So drinking enough water, non-negotiable, making sure that you're eating nutrient-dense meals. And I know you as mothers with a child with diabetes know way more about nutrition and blood sugar levels than I ever will. But saying, am I eating colorful, nutrient-dense food because your gut health is also connected to the health of your mind and your mood, right? Moving your body. So even walking or gentle stretching every 10 minutes on the hour, or even 30 minutes of cardio a week is going to be like for your brain taking a bath in these neural chemicals that are protective and feel good if you can, moving for at least 30 minutes. And I know this is going to be a very difficult ask, but getting you to sleep at least seven straight hours is also essential fuel for the mind and body. And many moms can't, and fathers cannot necessarily do that. And I would say, I do, I do not have a perfect solution for how we do that. But I want you to know that if you can, or however we can to get you to prioritize sleep, that is going to be the single most effective thing you can do for both your mental and physical health. Right? So uh, water, food, movement, and rest. These are the non-negotiables during times of trauma. And I would say don't go at it alone. These periods of trauma, that means one or two people in your life where you can go to them and say, this is a really hard time. And that person is not going to say, come on, look at the bright side, and it's going to be okay, and be thankful for what you have. And all of the toxic positivity is not someone that should be in the inner circle, especially during times of trauma. So at the bare minimum, during any period of trauma, we want to try to avoid anything that may make things worse for you. At the bare minimum, do no harm. That means do not watch any news during that time, which is traumatic. No shows or movies about death, dying, chronic illness, or anything. You're like, this is really heavy. It means not going to overstimulating places like, you know, bright lights, malls sometimes even can be too stimulating. 
And it also means not connecting or socializing with people who may say sympathetic, invalidating, unsupportive things that can make it worse when you're going through a difficult time. So during times of trauma, we're going back to the basics and survival. I love this. I love it. As a, as a health and wellness and lifestyle medicine coach, that's pretty much almost all the pillars of lifestyle medicine that you've just highlighted. And it's so true. And that, that was really going back to basics. There's been a few times in my life where once I had some chronic um, ulcerative colitis, going back to basics helped that. And then when I was trying to overcome my pneumonia, my reoccurring pneumonia, my lack of sleep, I was like, okay, I can't sleep well, but what can I do? You know, and it was all around the eating. I was eating well, but not eating, like you said, dense nutrients. That's when I started, you know, I got a very slow, you know, um, juicer that it, it turns more slowly to keep all the fiber and more nutrients in. And just vegetables and everything green. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to get, I don't know where it came from. Like it wasn't something I read. I think there, that was kind of a time in social media where people were talking about like celery juice or something. And I'm like, I'm not going to drink celery juice, but I like green stuff. I like green vegetables. I like green apples. And so I'm just going to put them together and at least then I'm taking in some, you know, more nutrients. And that was kind of the first step to going back to basics, as you called it. I love it. It's because it it is, it is true. And I hear more and more therapists actually talking now about, you know, we always knew um, movement and exercise was healthy, but for so many conditions, people are, are, are calling it out kind of what I guess you knew for a long time, but really emphasizing that exercise can make you feel so much better, even though it's really hard to find the time. Or in the case of having a child with type one, you're probably afraid to leave your child to go exercise, you know, even for 30 minutes or whatever, but for 30 minutes, if you know, you've done all your checks and everything's in place, you'll probably be okay. I would say start wherever you are. Even if that means what you can do is lay on the floor for five to 10 minutes and gently stretch. Even if it means I'm going to walk from my door to my balcony for five minutes gently, I would say if you can do a little bit, I would say do a 10 minute gentle walk around your home. That can be enough to get some of the juices in the body and the brain flowing just start somewhere with gently moving. And if you can do 30 minutes of a cardio exercise, it doesn't matter what it is. I don't care if it's Zumba. I don't care if it's like CrossFit, whatever just gets your heart rate up a little bit more than what it normally is. That's, that is, that is great. And we're saying this, um, yeah, that back to basics and don't do things that will make things worse for you. Right. And that means not saying things to yourself that can be incredibly judgmental. Like, I should be stronger. I should be faster. I should be better. I should be coping better. That that harsh inner critic can also make things a lot worse when we're going through pain. And the last thing I'll say about this is during times of trauma or any big emotionally overwhelming experience, uh, caffeine, so any, which is a stimulant. And especially if you already struggle with anxiety, will absolutely make the anxiety worse. 
So again, I love coffee, but I will say I want you to be conscious of, do I need to limit my caffeine intake during this time of trauma? That's so true. Because when, when it happened, when my son was diagnosed and I wasn't sleeping and my caffeine intake went up, ironically, I just wrote an article about how much caffeine is enough. And even like now in a good place, two cups a day and I'm done. I had a third cup in the afternoon yesterday, affected my sleep horribly. It's a stimulant. And I would say also avoid risky substances. If you drink, you know, wine or alcohol, or if you smoke, probably those also don't, you know, doing excessive of any substance is probably not, not a good idea. Absolutely. So alcohol may feel okay in, in the night of or the day, but we know that is a depressant. So the next day we're going to see that low flat, empty mood that potentially will make things worse for you. Anytime we think of, um, you know, like a quick fix, like I'm just going to eat this, smoke this, drink this because I need to feel okay now. Distraction can be a helpful remedy short term, but it cannot be the long term solution to the pain that you're experiencing, right? Because it, it, it kind of builds. And I, I love what you said, Pam, about um, movement is that sometimes in our mind, we may say, I'm good, I'm strong, I'm getting through this, I feel good today. And the body is like, I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. My heart is heavy. And so sometimes we can intellectualize through things very quickly, that the body is a very slow, ancient being, that nervous system. It needs a lot more of those basics. And really important during stressful times is we need soothing, not solutions, right? So any of this going back to the basics or even things like meditation, deep breathing, moving, at no point am I saying, if you do all of these things, then you'll be okay. And you'll, you know, we'll solve the stress. No, right? We're saying we're soothing the nervous system and we're nourishing and caring for you as you are holding this added tax of emotional stress, that's always there to some degree. I love that. So how then, because another thing that I, I see is how can we, as parents, we're worried, we're anxious, we have all this anxiety, this fear, um, a lot of stress we're carrying around. And how can we not let that affect our children? And I mean, of course, children need to see parents express different emotions. Everything is not kittens and unicorns all the time. So mm -hmm. we don't want to ignore the situation. But sometimes I see parents are in the types of questions that they ask in the support group. It, they're either holding their children back from participating in normal activities because they're they're so afraid. And that's a really valid response and feeling but it doesn't help your child become resilient with diabetes or you want them to grow up and feel, you know, as normal, or I hate to use the word normal because diabetes is normal. Diabetes is a condition and there's no reason why anyone shouldn't feel normal or, or different because of it. It's mm -hmm. other people that, that think that, but how do we normalize it? I guess so that our child can grow up happy, healthy, and do all the things, and it, it shouldn't keep them from doing things. So how can we manage our emotions and stress and everything and 
and then help facilitate their emotional growth at the same time. I think one of the most important things that that parents can do is make sure that your nervous system is regulated. So that means even if you're not saying anything to the child or the teen, but your nervous system is flooded, anxious, overwhelmed, or shut down, they're picking up on that, right? Because they're attuned to you, just like you're attuned to them and you're you notice things without them saying things. And that is actually true in their observation of you. And if you feel safe, grounded, calm, I know which can be uh, difficult, um, that, that's one of the best gifts that you can give to actually those around you by honoring the basics. Now, we also do not and cannot expect perfection from parents. It's cruel. It's unrealistic. What we're saying is one of the most important things about your relationship with your child will be there's going to be ruptures, but how do we repair? Meaning mom was really struggling earlier or she was feeling really worried and scared. And what was that like for you? And how can we work through that better together? So it's not, what's most important is not that you never mess up. It's how do we repair with one another when mom was so scared and didn't want you to try any of those new things. And I know how much you wanted to, what was that like for you? And that is going to be where there's like, a, I would say like a metaphorical pot of gold and how are we repairing? And I would say the um, something that I find a lot and also working with teens and young adults who have been living with diabetes type one for a long time is there can be feelings of defectiveness. There can be feelings of, I know my mom and dad and siblings don't think I'm different. And I know that they've showed me you're strong. You can do anything anyone else can do. This is not a disability. You're just as powerful, beautiful, everything. And there can be moments when the child or the young adult is saying, I don't feel that way today. And I I see friends and people going to university and they're doing things that that I can't, and I'm worried about dating and what this means and, and all of these things. And we're saying a gift for the child, the teen or the young adult is also to be with that pain and say, I don't see that. I don't believe that, but what is it like for you? Right. And we want to make space for that pain. And I think, and I observe that can be very distressing for parents because sometimes parents will say, no, that's not true. And I'm saying, well, now I can't tell you that actually today I'm so angry and I hate this and I don't want to do this. And the child will have seasons of their life too, where some seasons are like, I'm good. I'm great. Like this isn't holding me back. There's mastery. And then there will be other seasons. Like I hate this. I don't want it. And that is where we're in the terrain of grief, the loss of the dream of leading a healthy life the loss of the dream of having all the choices someone without diabetes has. And and for many parents, that's the loss of the dream of not worrying, right? Not worrying and and, um, having a good night's sleep and the dream of family trips and the dream that you had for your, your, the future of your child is there's a loss that's there. And sometimes you're like, I'm good. Like we're thriving. And then there can be a trigger. Or maybe you you meet a friend for coffee and there's nothing on her radar about diabetes or hospitals or care. And you're like, are you serious? This is unfair. 
And I need you to know that in those moments when that pain shoots up, you're not crazy. You're not not being resilient or not being strong. That is a grief response that's coming up. And it's so important you allow yourself to release, ventilate, and feel that. That is so true. And I even have an example that happened. I forgot about this. But I, you know, I called it out. We have a close friend group here. And a lot of them, their children have gone off to university or they're just graduating university. So a lot of empty nesters. And of that group, our son is the, the youngest or one of the youngest. And there, and one of the guys said to my husband, oh, make sure you're enjoying it every day because it goes by so quickly. That just landed. And he had no, no intention whatsoever to have it about anything. That's just his experience. And we all know it goes so quickly and we miss our kids when they, they go off to school and all of these normal things. But that landed so badly with me because I'm like, dude, I have been enjoying every day because I know life is fleeting, not just for university purposes, but for chronic condition, health purposes, all of these other things. And I was just like, it it just, you know, I don't even know how to define it, but it just did not land well because for all the reasons you point out that all the, the diabetic stuff the the thing I think that I'm one of the biggest things that I agree the most is that whole carefree life. Like when we travel, there's a whole carry on. I'm like a pharmacy, you know, you're not getting stopped by airport security because you got 5 million things in your bag and they don't understand them um, or going to school carefree or sending your child, just, just worrying about the normal things, right. With, without diabetes, that's carefree. So yeah, it it comes up all of that time. And and for me, it's it's the care, the carefreeness of it. And I know that he's getting close to that time where, you know, and I, I tell him sometimes jokingly if he forgets to give insulin or bolus or something. And I'm like, dude, um, you want me to come to university with you? Of course you don't. Like, like who's gonna do this? You need to like step up and do it, but there is no like carefree, just enjoy it. Yeah. That, that doesn't exist. That's really painful. Right. Because there's this, if we think of your role as mother, uh, there's, and we almost separate and say, there's a part of you that is, it, it feels like mothering, but it's literally like the, the diabetes expert. It's like, it's literally like triaging, it's paramedic, it's doctor, it's nurse, it's, it's, that becomes mobilized within you. And, you know, I imagine you in this moment and this person says, you know, savor it. And one part of you is like, I savor it every day because I know that I could lose him any day. And there may be another part where it's like, well, sometimes I can't savor and enjoy it because I'm just trying to keep him alive. And so I can see how there's there can be such a loneliness that's experienced in other people simply will not understand what it's like to have a chronic condition. Usually there's a lot of empathy and flowers when the diagnosis is fresh, but it, most individuals' tolerance to really understand and empathize with what your daily life is, the, the, the bandwidth can be very short. It's like, okay, but be grateful. And like, you know, it's like, and that's where we're saying that not going at it alone is so important. That means that doesn't have to mean talking to a professional. It means like support groups. It means this podcast. 
Uh, but it can mean speaking to a counselor that can also understand and support, especially if at any point in your journey, you're having panic attacks. If you're ever having suicidal thoughts where you're saying, I just don't want to live anymore, or feelings of hopelessness, helplessness are getting stronger, or you're just struggling to function in your life, right? We're saying, or if you're leaning more and more on a certain addictive behavior, which can be food, it can be work, it can be, you know, substances or alcohol. If any of those things you're experiencing, we're saying you have to now get um, a professional involved. Yeah. And you, sorry, I was going to say, you may even want to go before you get to that point. In the beginning, I was so overwhelmed. And what you pointed out, like no one could really empathize and not that they didn't try or didn't want to. There wasn't anything anyone could say. They didn't know what to do. They didn't understand it. And I was tired of speaking with people, you know, or even my own mother was like, well, why do you think this happened? And I'm like, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to explain why this happened or didn't happen or do that. I mean, you know, everyone has to deal in the family has to deal with their own challenges with it. But yeah, I did, you know, go to a therapist for a short while. There wasn't really anything she could say or do to make it better. Um, and it was just more kind of, you know, uh, some of the back to basic stuff that you, you highlighted. So especially in the beginning, if you just feel overwhelmed with emotion um, and you don't feel like you're being heard by anyone or there's anyone you can relate to, I, I would highly recommend it. Even if it's just for like a few sessions to kind of get some perspective, it, it can be super helpful. I think that. If you're on the fence and wondering, like, should I talk to someone? Like, would it be helpful? The answer is yes. Just check in, even if it's one session. And we want to change this notion that you only reach out if there's crisis, right? Early intervention is a dream. And sometimes talking may not be what you need, but there must be some inward practice of how am I caring for my body? Is it yoga? Is it dance? Is it journaling? Do I have a close knit, uh, you know, tribe of one to two people who just hear me. They don't try to fix or solve. And of course, therapy can be important. And, um, you know, so many people with trauma didn't have a good relationship with mental health even before, where they're like, we never talked about feelings. And I just, this is all unknown to me. So beginning to build emotional intelligence, meaning I can recognize what I'm feeling. I can name it. I can regulate it. How do I regulate these emotions when they do come up? How do I respond to myself and my child with empathy? These are all some of the tools that we can work on and, and, and guide you with in, in a therapy process. Yeah, that's a really, really great advice and so true. And I think probably just the biggest challenge, and you probably are overwhelmingly busy. I I think there's so much in need for mental health and mental support. And sometimes people might call make to try to make an appointment with someone, but they have to wait a few weeks until they see someone. If they're a first time patient while they're in that kind of waiting process, because, you know, when people oftentimes when they reach out, they're feeling bad at that point in time and hearing that, Oh, you have to wait two weeks or three weeks, you know, to get an appointment what would you suggest that they do while they're waiting? I would say, uh, you know, it, ideally we can strike when the iron's hot. So we're always trying to 
you know, when you reach out is a time of great courage. And by the time you get your appointment or two or three weeks, you may be like, do I really need this? And I would say, stick with it at that point, still go. And during that time when it's hot metaphorically inside of you, I would really encourage a person to journal, to write down, what does this feel like? Take that content to the session. And whether it's journaling, writing, painting, speaking to someone you love, document that process in a way that resonates with you and take it uh, to the session. And of course, just start with those basics. Right. So if you're because no amount of counseling can complete compete with sleep deprivation or an unhealthy gut. Right. So during that time, I would say just start with water, food, movement, rest, get those things in order. You're going to the therapy is going to land quicker, more effectively. And during that time, I would also check in with the GP to do general blood work thyroid, vitamin D, B12, you know, just some of the hormones to say, is there anything medical going on that may be making how I'm feeling worse? So that can, I would, I would get those things in order before as you're waiting. That's an excellent, excellent advice. And and caretakers always are, we're kind of like making appointments for everyone else. And then our health is like at the bottom of the list. So that's excellent advice. And Pam, you know, we spoke about this in our initial call. If you're searching for the right type of therapist, if you have a child with a chronic condition, the key words I'd look for, one is always make sure they're licensed, Mm -hmm. right? Licensed counselor, licensed psychologist, but people who have experience with grief, right? Because that is a huge aspect of a chronic condition. We're not fixing we're guiding, supporting, soothing, we're mapping the journey with you. So look for someone who has experience with grief. And also keywords would be health psychology, right? If someone has that experience or keyword, it means that they're, they know this terrain really well. So I, I, I would, yeah, I want you to know. That. I, yeah, I love that you've highlighted that. I had never actually, even though I worked in healthcare all my life, never actually heard of the word health psychology, I think maybe because in the US, they often refer to social workers, or, you know, there are people with that specialty, but they're part of a comprehensive practice, which you don't always see here. And I can say to to listeners, absolutely, you want to do that. Because the first time I met with Farah, I was in tears in like 15 minutes, it was unexpected. And having a professional conversation, but because she really put words around feelings that I never had words for before ever. And, and, and those are things that we've talked about today. So it, it really makes such a difference because I've, I've talked with other therapists for different things and, and, and there are experienced people out there, but they have different training, different experiences and the type of clients that they've seen, you know, also gives them certain wisdom and insight. So definitely grief and this whole health psychology is really something that that should be explored. And if you are in Dubai in the UAE, I will put all of um, Farah's information where you can find her if you want to reach out, make an appointment um, with her or learn learn more about her. We'll have all of that in the show notes for you. It's it's super important. So mm-hmm. we'll definitely explore more. I think we're, we've almost like used up the whole time. I have, I could talk to you all day about this because there's so many dynamics when it comes to it, but I think I would love to have you back to talk mm-hmm. more because mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you also, you know, about 
the the children that actually are living with type one or with diabetes or the adults that are, there's so many other questions that I have, but I think I'll pause. This is not a break or we're not stopping the conversation. I will pause the conversation for now as this really did a great job of focusing on the the caretakers and, and what we as parents and caretakers can do to help ourselves, to help our children and, and where we can find help and in, in different strategies and techniques. So if that's okay, I'm going to pause for now because otherwise we'll need another hour once I start with my next mm-hmm. round of questions. All right. I'd be honored to be back. Thank you for what you do. No, thank you. Thank you for what you do. Really. It's, it's such a really important role and I think so special. And so it's probably also challenging a lot at the same time because you're, you're meeting people where they are. And when, by the time we, when we're coming to you, we are, we are dealing with like really challenging things. So honestly, thank you so much for that. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to journey with people. It's our, it's, I know I say this for me and our team. It's our, it's our calling. Yeah. You all, you all do a lot of amazing things. So, so thank you so much. Thanks again for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Take care, Pam. Thank you. That was one of all, all of the podcast interviews I do, I feel are so important. The people that I get to meet, I'm so privileged and honored to meet them. And I learn something new every time I speak with them. Um, I hope you do too. This particular episode touched on, like I said, something I had never thought about. And even though I'm a caretaker and experienced a lot of caretaker trauma, anxiety, and all of these things, I never thought about it. I never thought to talk about it. I never, even though I was kind of talking about some of it, but it was more just advocating and different things like this. But what I realized after my pre-podcast meeting with Farah was that I didn't have language for it. I didn't even know that these things were bothering me or stressing me out or that my, you know, my behavior was a result of that trauma. So I hope that if you are a caretaker, that this has really given you some tips and ideas of how to better manage the stress that you're constantly under, because we unfortunately can't get rid of diabetes. We have to continue to manage it. We have to teach our children to grow up and be happy and healthy with it. And we are hypervigilant. That's what we do. I think it's the role of a parent anyway to be hypervigilant in many cases. If you're listening to this and you have a child that doesn't have a chronic condition, think about how hypervigilant you are if your child gets a flu or, you know, as a result of that and vomiting and ends up in the hospital and you go home after a few days and it's fine. And and that's great. And, you know, I'm glad that you get to go home and everything's okay. But imagine having to function in that state when you're at your most hyper vigilant, caring for your child, making sure the doctors are doing the right things. And if you live in that state all the time, it's super, super stressful. So hats off to all of you caretakers of children with chronic conditions. And uh, we will definitely have Farah back on the podcast because I have so many other questions for her. And we'll put her, um, the Lighthouse Arabia, I really want to thank 
Lighthouse Arabia and Saliha for suggesting that she join me for this discussion. We'll put all of those links in the show notes where you can find them and anything else that we've talked about today. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with a friend. Go give us a comment on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to continue to do what we're doing to keep the podcast going and help more people find us. Please, um, we'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you so much again for your support. And we'll look forward to seeing you at the next episode.